Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Darren. Darren, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Darren. I'm a third-year PhD candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology, and I'm also a member of the Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior Program. Nice. And what is your research involved with? So I, I look at foraging behavior in bumblebees. Want to tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. So bumblebees are really interesting because they live in groups called a nest or a hive, and they have to collectively make sure that they're collecting a lot of food so that they can raise their young all together. In order to do this, they have to evolve some strategy to best allocate themselves to the resources in the environment, the resources for bees being flowers, specifically. So I'm interested in how bumblebees are able to find the best flowers in the environment so they can collect a lot of food to feed their babies. How are you able to actually determine whether or not bees are flying to a particular species of flower? And what have you found so far tends to be the main factor that keeps bees coming to a particular flower? I actually do my experiments in a really big flight cage, we call it. So we have a mesh set up and we're able to mow all the grass and set up our own artificial feeders. So I don't use real flowers. I use fake flowers, basically. And in that way, I'm able to kind of control what resources are available in the environment um, so that I can look more directly at the bees flying to them. Within this environment, do you have multiple types of flowers? No, I just have one um, feeder that I use and for certain experiments, and occasionally I'll set up a second feeder that looks exactly the same as the first one in a different area. Do these feeders look like flowers? Not very much, no. <laughs> they are circular. And they have a lot of sugar water in them, which mimics the nectar of flowers. Because what I'm really interested in isn't the qualities of the flower and how the bees respond to that. I'm interested in how they respond to the quality of the nectar inside the flower. So I kind of make all my fake flowers look the same, and then I can just control the quality of the food inside the flower, basically. How are you able to actually replicate the nectar that's found in the flower? And do you control for that in the sense that do you have different samples with different concentrations of the nectar-like fluid? And how does this help you with your research? Yeah, so we just make solutions of sugar water. So there's a lot of things in nectar that we're not able to mimic exactly. But the main thing the bees are looking for is just sugar. So what we do is we just take hot water and dump in a bunch of sugar and we measure out how much sugar we're putting in so we can get different concentrations. And in that way, we can control kind of the quality of the sugar water because all the bees really care about from the nectar for the most part is the sugar. And so that's what we're giving them. Um, yeah, and I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> for clarification purposes, I'm gathering that you're feeding these bees in a 
kind of mesh area and that you're giving them the same thing over and over. What are you hoping to learn from your experiment? What is the objective of your experiment? I'm hoping to figure out what strategy the bees use to find the best resources in the environment. Um, and this is because we know that lots of other kinds of bees and other social insects like ants have different communication systems set up so that they can kind of tell each other where the food is in the environment. So honeybees do this thing called a waggle dance where they are able to, it's exactly what it sounds like, where they wiggle their bodies in the direction of the best flowers that are out there and they can communicate like the exact location of resources. And ants do this cool thing, or some of them do, where they'll lay odor trails in the environment that other ants can follow to find the best food sources. So they communicate in these ways. Bumblebees, which I work with, don't do any of those things. They don't lay odors and they don't wiggle in the nest to tell each other where the food is, but they still need to kind of work together to find the best resources in the environment. So that's what I'm interested in doing is figuring out what kind of social cues they might use in the nest to kind of help each other find the best resources. Is there a particular reason why your research group is studying bumblebees? Kind of just because nobody's answered this question with them yet. Honeybees have been studied really, really extensively for a lot of different things. And my advisor has done a lot of work with honeybees, including with the waggle dance I was just talking about. Um, but nobody's really looked at how bumblebees, or if they communicate socially in the nest like this, or what exactly they do. And so that's why I'm working with them specifically. Are they endangered? No. So my species of bumblebee is not endangered. It's actually reared commercially. So there are companies that raise them to sell to farmers mostly to like put in their fields to help pollinate crops and things like that. So I can just buy colonies of bumblebees for like, I don't even know how much, not that much money um, for my experiments. There are some bumblebees that are endangered. In total, there's 250 different species of bumblebee. So some of them are not doing so well right about now. Some of them are doing really well. My species in the wild is actually doing really well. It's expanding in its range. You mentioned how the bees that you're studying are used in a lot of different commercial applications. Are the endangered ones also important for these commercial applications, or are they more just for nature? So the there's only been a few species of bumblebee that are raised commercially. So there's my species, and I think there's one or two others, mostly out in the west coast of the United States. Um, and then there's a species in England, in Europe, that is raised commercially. But the vast majority of them are not commercially reared. And so they're just out in the wild pollinating things. Why have there not been efforts to repopulate the endangered species of bees with the same techniques that they're using to breed the commercialized bees? That's a great question. Um, I think the problem comes down to if you want to raise bumblebees um, commercially, you have to kind of replicate the nest environment that they would form in the wild. 
So part of the problem would be that different species of bumblebee have different requirements of like space that they use and the temperature and humidity they require. And in order to figure those things out, first of all, you have to study them a lot. So the species that I use that I can buy commercially is also just really common throughout the eastern United States. So it's really easy to study. A lot of the endangered ones, you wouldn't really even be able to find them to study them well enough. Um, and then just the effort of actually replicating that environment kind of artificially would be really difficult to fine tune. So I think that's why people haven't cracked that exactly yet. It's really hard to kind of domesticate different kinds of bee. How do you model the behavior of these bees? I've done all my modeling work in a uh, programming language called Python. And essentially, it's something that we call an agent-based model, where I have a simulated group of bees that I can send out to forage or to search for food on a grid of just numbers. And different values of number in the grid would correspond to different kind of reward values. So a bigger number would be a better flower, essentially, and a lower number would be a lower value. And what I try to manipulate in this model is how much communication there is inside the nest that the agents or bees return to. How are you able to clarify that in real life? Are you marking every single bee and seeing if it goes to the feeding source? Or are you looking at how these bees interact with each other in the air or something? What I do in the real life experiments is I have one colony of bees that I set up in the big flight cage I talked about, and I can train them to visit the artificial flower, the fake flower. Um, training them is really fun. You just basically put them on a pipette and you bring them over to the feeder and they learn really easily where the feeder is. Then what I do is I, once they're coming and going from that regular feeder I set up and I train them to, I introduce food directly into the nest that's better in quality than the food I train them to. So it's kind of mimicking a one bee bringing back something better that she found that the other bees don't know about. And then I'm able to watch if the bee's behavior changes at that first artificial feeder. And I also set up a second feeder in a different location. And I see if they kind of like go to search around for a new feeder once they know there's something better out in the environment. How well have your computer models and what you've observed in nature so far how well do they agree? They actually line up really well, which was very good. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I've essentially found that the bees in the real-life experiments do respond to the food that I'm putting into the nest by kind of rejecting the other food that I train them to and searching for something new, which would be what we'd expect if they're actually kind of responding to what other bees are doing inside the nest. And when I've simulated that in the model, um, I see a similar effect where they're able to kind of collectively bring in more resources when they're using kind of social information in the nest. 
What fuels your passion for this? What inspired you to be studying this? My passion really comes down to kind of a childhood passion I had. It kind of sounds a little cliche to say that, like, oh, I've loved animals ever since I was a kid. Um, but I have. That's the truth. And I always knew that I wanted to grow up to study animals in some way. And I never really cared what animal it was. And as I got to college and started looking around at different animal species that were out there, I got really interested in the social insects like bees, especially because they have really unique social systems. Like they live in these groups with a queen and a bunch of workers. And that's really interesting. And also because they're just so important for the environment. Um, and they kind of have this charismatic presence in like our culture that made me really interested in them. And I was fortunate to be able to work in a lab that studies bumblebees, which are less studied than honeybees, which I also think is really cool to kind of break new ground with a different species. While you were working with these bees, have you ever been stung by any of them? I have been stung by many bees in my days. <laughs> um, my lab uses both bumblebees and honeybees, and I've been stung plenty of times by both. Um, usually a handful of times every summer, since our experiments always take place over the summer, because that's when the bees are flying around. Um, I've been stung on the lip, inside the ear, um, all over my arms and legs. It just kind of comes with, comes with the job. So it's safe to say that you really love bees. <laughs> I must to keep coming back every time. <laughs> Do you feel a difference with a sting from a honeybee versus a bumblebee? I definitely do. And sometimes even between individual bees, like two different bumblebees might feel different when they sting you. It might have to do with where they sting you as well. Um, from my observations, honeybees tend to have the, the sharper pain right away. And it stays like really sharp, intense pain, but it doesn't last as long. Whereas the bumblebees, it's not as sharp initially, but it kind of like stays longer, like this dull pain. Yeah, both are not very fun. All right, this is giving me the chills. Uh, how about we ask you something nicer? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned before. You had said that you guys study the bees in the summer because obviously they can't be flying around in like negative 20 degrees winter over here in Michigan. I'm wondering what do they actually do in the winter when they're hibernating or something like that? Are they hiding? And what do you do in the winter when you can't be playing with your bees? Yeah, there's not a whole lot I can do in minus 20 degree weather either. Um, so what the bees do kind of depends on the species of bee. Honeybees will kind of collect themselves in their hive in like a ball so they can all keep warm together. And they'll try to survive over the winter using the honey that they've made. So they're called honeybees because they make honey. And the honey they make is meant to keep them alive throughout the winter. Bumblebees um, don't do that at all they actually all just die off at the end of the summer. So in like the fall, the bumblebee colony will start raising up the babies to be new queens and males, and they'll fly out of the nest to start like reproducing um, or to start mating, sorry. And then once the queens are mated, they go and dig a little hole in the ground and they wait there over the winter. They hibernate until the spring when they come out and they can start their own nest. 
But all those old workers that were in that first colony all just die off. So what's the lifespan of these bumblebees? The individual bees can live for maybe four or five weeks, a few weeks. The colony as a whole just lasts one one year, like one summer. I never realized that. Why can't everyone just hibernate and dig into the ground, too? Why do they just have to fly away and freeze to death? I think it's because the the individuals have such short lifespans that it wouldn't be worth it to try to survive over the winter because then by the time you came out, you'd be really old anyway. Um, whereas the honeybees that do survive over the winter can have new babies coming out while they're huddled up in the winter. Does the same thing happen with bees that live in a warmer climate? With bumblebees that live in a warmer climate? or Yeah, do they still die off in, in a few weeks, even if the cold doesn't get to them? Yeah, most bumblebee species are temperate, so they live in environments where there's a winter that they can't survive. Uh, there are a handful, I think a handful, of tropical bumblebees, and they actually just live throughout the year, kind of like honeybees do. But most bumblebees live in places where we have four seasons, and they cannot survive over the winter. Yeah. You've gained all of these different practical skills in your tenure of working with these bees. What are your plans now for whenever you finish with your doctoral degree? Do you plan on staying in the bee industry or maybe choosing a more academic route? My current plan... Um, is the same as when I was a kid, actually, which is to be a professor someday. So I'd like to stay in kind of the academic path rather than go off into like pollinator agricultural industry. Um, as part of that, I'd like to keep working with bees, partially because I like them and now I have experience with them. But I also wouldn't mind branching off into other species as well. Insects have a negative stigma. For example, even I'm afraid of insects. I'm wondering how can we break that stigma? What recommendations do you have for children who might be interested in insects? I think that the negative stigma around insects is, at least I've been noticing, kind of going away as people have been realizing how important they are to the environment. So not just bees, but lots of other insects are really important. In order to actually kind of overcome a fear of insects or being creeped out or grossed out by them, um, I think it's good to try to ease yourself into handling them or at least looking at pictures of them to start, then maybe looking for them just outside in your backyard or something, and then finally trying to like actually pick one up and handle it safely to see that it's just a tiny living thing that really poses no threat. Isn't there also an MSU bug house on campus? Oh, yes, there is. And they don't only have insects. They also have um, arachnids like spiders and scorpions and other kinds of creepy crawly things. Um, So it's a great place to go. And I know that they have school nights there where schools will bring the kids in to look at all the different insects and spiders and stuff. And you can actually handle them there very safely with people who are experts at handling them to kind of help break through that fear um, of even looking at them. That's wonderful. Honestly, if they had done that with me when I was in elementary or something, maybe I wouldn't be so afraid of insects right now. And hopefully not only myself, but other people can get over their 
fear and negative stigma of insects. That's really great information about the MSU Bug House. Thank you for so much for sharing that, as well as a lot about your research. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.